Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How's your butter doing? <laughs> I heard that all the butter in Canada is just like a totally different texture. Everything's going wild. It's like top of my news. <laughs> What's up with your butter? Uh, as someone that eats a lot of butter, um, I have to admit I haven't noticed a difference in my butter. It has been as soft as it usually is sitting out on the counter in room temperature. That's the secret, by the way, everybody. If you never thought that you can leave butter out, you sure can. Is there no <laughs> news in Canada? <laughs> I assure you that there is so much news, but I just, I don't understand what it is about, you know, uh, the imagination of journalists or something, <laughs> or the way that they just don't give a shit about certain communities and the news that are, are happening, the news that is happening in those communities. I don't know, but... There was a lot of news about butter this week, and I'm just floored. I mean, uh, you know, it's a little embarrassing that you've just admitted to our entire uh, listener base that you have a really unrefined butter palate, but um, <laughs> <laughs> no, this whole thing is ridiculous. I, I can't, I can't, I can't care about it. I can't. You know what? I... I found this butter that is goat butter, and it's very salty and delicious. And I was so excited because I couldn't find it in the stores for a while. And I found it again, and I was like, yes, goat butter. And I ate it, and it was rancid. And, but I couldn't really tell if it was rancid. Oh, so I was like, I know. So I was like <laughs> smelling it, not sure, and, and just kind of putting on this, putting on that. And I've got a really sensitive, like, when dairy turns, like, I want to just die, basically, when I eat it by accident. But this I just couldn't tell. And there's no expiry date on it. And I was like, what the fuck? So I contacted the company and I was like, here's the lot number. Tell me when you manufactured this. And they responded. And this was in October. And they were like, oh, it expired in August. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, I'm sorry. Like, can I have your address so that I can come to your house right now? <laughs> Smash this into your face. <laughs> I feel like that's a a bigger, better story than the palm oil story. Yeah, well, through that process, I found out that somehow this little company got around labeling laws and um, never had to actually say when their due dates were. And so when I called the company and I was like, I'm sorry, what the fuck? Like, are you trying to murder people with this shit butter? And she was like, well, there's nothing for you to be too concerned about because in 2021, we'll, we'll be forced to put the date on it. And I'm like, yeah, like fucking every... Every everyone else, what are you talking about? And so anyway, that's that's the only butter story that I have in my mind. I, I don't have any room in my brain for anything other than this. And so I guess that's why I'll never work for the national. <laughs> oh God, I guess that's why. Okay, so in any case, before we get to our main stories tonight, because we're gonna do a bit of a roundup. We're gonna just do there was so much news this week. We're just gonna do a bit of a roundup. Um, do we have people to thank? Yes, we've got a lot of people to thank. And so this week, thanks so, so much for your support to Brini, Morgan, Matthew, Jasmine, Sarah, Dinah, or Dina, but I think it's Dinah, Devin, Gnome, Allison, Todd, and Moremi. Thank you so, so much for your support. Thanks to everybody that shares the podcast. And you know what? Don't feel shy. You can always head over to iTunes or to wherever you listen to the podcast and give us a like because some of the negative comments that we got years ago are still like dominating our popularity. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, thank you so much. So, oh my God, so many things happened this week. Oh, I just feel like uh, there's just so much news, an influx of news, and that's unusual in, in this time where all the news seems to be the same. So <laughs> what do we got? We had this huge black on campus story that the Fifth Estate, CBC's The Fifth Estate, um, aired about black students' experiences on campus. We have this uh, this <laughs> this kind of bombshell moment of Selena Caesar Chavan on the National um, saying, "Who the fuck do you think you're talking to, motherfucker?" To Justin Trudeau, <laughs> actual quote, um, and that's something I'd like to talk about. And then we've got. The Pharmacare vote. The yes. massive Pharmacare vote. Why don't we start there? Oh, okay. What do you think, Nora? Sure. Sure. What a shocking outcome. <laughs> I, for one, was really ready <laughs> for the liberals <laughs> to finally do it. You know, I just thought this is the moment. It's been years since the promise has been made multiple times over multiple um, different governments. But, you know, I just thought I had a good feeling about this particular time <laughs> because, you know, Justin Trudeau, what a reliable guy. Yeah. So, so reliable. Yeah. But I I am stunned. I am Le shocked that this is the outcome <laughs> that the liberals have voted against the NDP pharmacare bill that was that was based on the liberals previous investigative report into implementing pharmacare. It's just all a clusterfuck of Canadian bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, it sure was. Um, so if, if you haven't been paying attention to the news, a private member's bill was put forward by the NDP, by I believe it was by Don Davies, and it um, would have gotten the government to start taking steps towards making a national pharmacare program. It wasn't exactly like pharmacare, pharmacare now. Um, and um, as you said, Sandy, it was based on the recommendations of uh, former Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister Eric Hoskins, who is one of these guys who always talks about his wife, like... <laughs> By calling her her full title. He's like, oh, yes. And here I'm with my wife, Dr. Samantha Nutt. It's like, why do you always have to call her that? <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> but anyway, that's just <laughs> some small Ontario trivia for you. And the motion um, um, failed. It failed. And although I was impressed that two liberals did vote for it. That's a sign of not much. Oh, who? I don't think I caught that. I didn't catch who, but I saw the number two. And I was like, oh, that is. Yeah, that means nothing. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, okay, I guess I guess that's cool that some people voted against their caucus and some people abstained, as I saw. But like, we've got to stop trusting liberals, people. And by me, we I mean, whoever out there is (laughs) trusting liberals because it's not us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, we probably have an episode at some point in the past saying that, wow, what a great promise. This is never going to happen. And so here we are, uh, proven, uh, it's proven right. Once again, it's like, yeah, gosh, the amount of promises that the liberals make that they don't implement. It's just, just the way that they operate. And when are people going to be sick and tired of that? 
when are people going to stop pretending that this is a party that uh, gives a shit and uh, 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 gives a shit in following through on anything that it promises people? I mean, God, this year in particular, you would think that this year in particular that they would have had an interest in even just cynically implementing this, um, given what's going on with health across the country, given what's going on with the pandemic, that they would see this as something valuable um, uh, towards getting elected in the next election, you know, even if we were just going to be completely cynical about it. If we were going to be, if we were going to expect them to be full human beings <laughs> mm-hmm. in the way that they, in the way that they govern, it's just almost unconscionable that they wouldn't do this. Uh, you know, like with the amount of people whose health have been has been impacted by the pandemic, not just because of COVID, but because of lack of access to health, uh, because of the way the pandemic has um, made resources um, stretched thin. Uh, you know, my God, like it's just the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, in all circumstances and even more, um, the right thing to do in this circumstance. And I'm just like, what the fuck have y- y'all been doing? Like y'all, uh, all, you know, all the we stuff, all of the, the fucking um, ethics stuff. It's just like the governor general stuff. Like you guys don't give a shit about anything outside of like this particular bubble that you operate in liberals. And I just, I'm just fucking sick of it. The two liberals who voted in favor of it were Nathaniel Erickson smith from Toronto and New, uh, New Brunswick's Wayne Long. And then there was also a Tory MP from Ontario named Ben Lobb, which oh. I guess in school he probably got called B. Lobb a lot. Okay. Because that's his name. I've never heard of the guy. And the Greens voted in favor and uh, so did two independents. I'm reading from Huffington Post and uh, they named one of the independents was Jody Wilson-Raybould. They don't name who the other one was. Um, so... One of the things I was most frustrated with was the was the rhetorical frame of the NDP, which like leaned way too far into the this is a liberal bill. Why are the liberals voting against a liberal bill frame, which I, I, I thought that was like a rhetorical error for them to make because the, 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 the NDP knows that the liberals will never support something that they serve. They will never agree to a national program like this through a private member's bill. Like, that's just impossible, especially during a minority government. Um, and the NDP was talking like like th- this was a, an obvious given kind of vote. Like, Don Davies was tweeting, like, this is uh, written by a liberal. Like, how could the liberals oppose it? And it just goes into, like, the core of what I find the most fucking annoying part of the NDP right now, which is that, like, it's just reason and logic and liberal politics that are going to get the liberals to do the right thing rather than, like knowing that they will never do the right thing and like serving one of these motions like every day or every week or something like that to really continue to hammer on them because it did help to drive um, the the narrative in the news cycle around pharmacare. Um, But it just it's it it just felt like rather than using this to build uh, something bigger, it was like the fight was this motion which uh, has a natural limit because the limit is the motion has failed, right? And what is the next step then for the NDP to get this 
passed. And, and you can tell by their logic, the next step is, oh, well, you need an NB- NDP government. This is this is how you get Pharmacare as you vote for the NDP government the next time the election comes around. And it's just like not how it's going to work, like not how a minority government is going to work, not how, how the fourth party is going to be able to influence public policy. And I was I was just really annoyed. And I don't know, like, I don't know why I keep coming back to the word annoyed, but it was just like, fuck off. Like, obviously, they weren't going to vote for this. Like, that cannot have been just your campaign to just serve this and then be like, haha, we showed you they wouldn't vote for it. Like, what is what else do you have? What are you organizing around? What are you pushing down to your riding associations? Where's the research? Like, I didn't see any statistics about how much this will save and how much I mean, there was a little bit about like, oh, my personal drug bill will go down. And like, that's useful. But, you know, we also need some macro numbers, too, because the macro numbers, I think, I mean, aside from being really compelling, but they also show the national scale of what this like program could change. And then the international scene. Anyway, so much education could have been done with this. And instead, it just seemed more like a stunt. And I felt that was annoying. Yeah, I mean, I get the stunt. I get the rhetorical frame of being able to say that the liberals are voting against something that they created. But I also agree that uh, this was such an opportunity because, you know, people were were frustrated by it. You know, there was quite a quite a bit of commentary, but the conversation is very limited if all you have is that the liberals voted against their own motion. The substance of what they voted against is really important, too. Tell us about how this would have changed the lives materially of people um, across the country in this particular moment. Tell us why it's important. Do some education work and get other organizations to talk about why they would have endorsed it and why they're frustrated about it at the same time. Because otherwise, all we had was just... Yes, the liberals voted against their own motion and then the liberals responded with this is against, uh, you know, jurisdictional powers. You know, they the liberals were trying to um, to their response to what the NDP said was just like, you know, uh, British North America Act and division of powers with uh, with respect to federal jurisdiction and provincial jurisdiction. This never would have worked, which is obviously a lie. And then the NDP responding with that's a lie. And that's the rhetorical universe of this motion. Mm-hmm. They could have created a different rhetorical universe. They could have expanded the rhetorical universe to include a lot of education. And it's just this thing that Nora and I just keep coming back to, like the role of a party. What is the role of a party? Is it just to focus on elections? Is it just to focus on these moments where you can discredit another party so that you can can use that uh, when it's uh, time for for elections or is it also is there also an organizing role is there an education role and i think there's a huge education role especially right now with respect to health and i think it was a missed opportunity as well absolutely it was also the same week where Doug Ford has moved in Ontario to create some free post-secondary programs at the college level for people to get into personal care working. And so it was, you know, one of these like moments where you see the problem with that that lack of education and organizing for these large to build the 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 the, the support for these large social programs uh, was it's just it was just a failure and and like 
the fact that the NDP... Well, and it's also, sorry, just before you continue, but it's also the, the same, it's coming on the heels of this, the, the, all of the organizing around the MAID legislation, right? Like there could have been discussion about what care really is, what people need in order to live a good life and to live in dignity. Pharmacare is a part of that. And, you know, um, these uh, ancillary care services that people need, like personal support workers, um, like, geez, these are these are all things that could have been part of an educational around where the Canada Health Act fails, where uh, the idea that Canada has health care is actually has free health care is actually not completely true and isn't borne out uh, in in the the very uh, difficult impacts of uh, of of the fact that we don't have universal health care on average everyday people. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of people who were fighting back against some of the rhetoric about how this is impossible, is unconstitutional, is kind of bullshit, which, by the way, it is not, um, by reminding people about how healthcare was even created in the first place. Um, because, of course, the Canada Health Act is a national piece of health-focused legislation. And, you know, on a strict reading of the Constitution, that would be not constitutional. But, of course, there's ways to get around the Constitution. There's ways to organize this stuff where it becomes federal jurisdiction. And I was so surprised to see nothing from the NDP explain how healthcare was enacted in the first place. Like to actually teach people how to understand that this constitutional argument is total bullshit. And, you know, like you think about how healthcare came because there was a showdown between an NDP government and their doctors in Saskatchewan. And that helped to create the confidence and the capacity for a federal government to enact a national system of public health care. And it's like, hmm, okay, interesting. Where's BC's pharmacare program? Like, where's the BC NDP in making mm-hmm. a pharmacare program mm-hmm. that could then grow out to the rest of Canada? Because this is the problem when the NDP plays a game of, oh, this is a motion, this is a liberal motion, the liberals better vote for it, because why can't they? They're liars and all this stuff. Because we know they're liars. We know they're snakes. I mean, they're going to come back in the next election and be like, take the NDP motion and be like, uh, we're serving this motion. You know, like that's what's going to happen. And then the NDP, all like NDP fucking MPs and and party activists are going to be like, we we did that. Right. It's like, yes, they played the game. That's how they do this. They are rats. Mm -hmm. But unless we actually see a pharmacare program working at at the provincial level, it becomes very difficult for Canadians to understand what that materially would change in their lives. And the BCNDP could fucking do it tomorrow. Like there's so much research on pharmacare programs and how to implement them and how much money they save and all this stuff. Quebec has been talking about it for a long time. Quebec's probably the province that's closest to creating something like that. They won't under the CAC. It's going to be if they ever were to do anything like that, it'd be shit. But the, but the NDP could do that in BC. And that's the way that you start to show people what saving money because of a national or a province-wide pharmacare program would do. And then you start to bring other provinces in and then you start to force discussion within the House of Commons. I mean, look, if you had supporters in all parties, albeit not many, but if you had supporters in all parties, this is something that you could win. But you have to act like a movement. You can't act like the fourth party that has no connections to provincial politics at all. uh, And that is just going kind of tit for tat or toe, toe to toe with the liberals. And 
you know, I, not that my hopes are super high that the NDP can pull something like that off, but that's the only path to actually being able to implement something so big. I mean, don't have too much faith in the BC NDP. They're really busy uh, building a dam over Site C, uh, which, you know, <laughs> is um, just fucking, again, <laughs> just another way that the NDP can be so frustrating. You know, they have all of this rhetoric, much like the Liberals do, on uh, Indigenous relations, how they're going to interact with First Nations people, and then they just don't give a shit when it comes time to do the right thing. And um, that's happening in BC right now. So, you know, fuck you, Horgan. <laughs> yeah, like the, the cost of the Site C Dam have, have, are going to be like, what, up to $16 billion in a pharmacare program would not cost that. <laughs> and then people would have, you know, cheaper drugs. Yeah, I guess it's really hard to make <laughs> those decisions. <laughs> I don't understand what it's like to be a politician to do something like that. But anyway, okay, let's move to uh, who the fuck do you think you're talking to, motherfucker? Oh, yeah. Like, let's talk about a politician that got in, saw the inside and was like, okay, I'm fucking out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What a story. I mean, for those of you who haven't seen uh, the the podcasts or the the um, the national episode where Selena Caesar Chavan was on, uh, or the articles that have come out. Selena Caesar Chavan has released a book that, in part, talks about her experiences as an MP. And uh, just to remind you, I think we talked about it briefly last week. Selena Caesar Chavan uh, had a falling out, a quite public falling out with. Um, uh, Justin Trudeau. She was a member of of the Liberal Party, and she documents how how tokenized she was by this government, and it's actually just so um, not at all surprising, but just uh, illuminating, I suppose, to hear uh, what her experiences have been. And I want to take this back to how people responded when Justin Trudeau. Uh, was uh, famously outed for doing all kinds of blackface, all kinds of blackface. This man, um, you know, people were like, gosh, that's just a childish thing that he did. Like, oh, gosh, like, let's just forget about it. He was a kid. Oh, gosh, blah, blah, blah. Even though he wasn't a kid, even though he was like a grown man, even though he did it like a thousand times or some shit. It's like... People were like, who cares? Like, what is the point in talking about this? And the reason why it's important is it because it is a piece of evidence that shows how he views black people, what he views uh, black people as, um, you know, uh, something to laugh at, perhaps tools uh, that he can use to to create an image of himself. And that is borne out in the way that he treated Selena Caesar Chavan, who, uh, you know, is a person of who has um, uh, a background that is uh, impressive in its own right in terms of her 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 studies, like as a as someone who's a scholar and someone who was a business person and so on, and of course elected and. Mm-hmm. Um, she talks about her experience in being invited, for example, uh, to the United States uh, as part of this delegation that was going to a state dinner that was meeting Obama, that was going to be, um, you know, doing the things that the politicians do in the United States. And she was only invited 
to like shake Obama's hand at this like introductory meeting. And then she was not invited to the state dinner and not invited to any of the meetings where they were discussing substantive political issues. She was only invited specifically so that he could could point to this black person and say, oh, look, black people in Canada, please shake Obama's hand and then please get out of the way. You have nothing else to offer us. This is what you're here for so that I can point to you when necessary to say that I got black people here. It's like a um, really awful form of blackface, in fact, <laughs> in, in in the fact that that's how he treated her. And it was it, on multiple occasions, although that's the one that she's, that's the story that she's uh, telling the most. But it, it is not hard in that context to then see why Justin Trudeau's entire engagement with black people has been oh, here are some photos of me um, at the door of no return with Masai Ujiri. And here I am, here are some photos of me kneeling at a rally. And oh gosh, I guess I have to do something for you folks. Let me allocate $5 million in mental health funds that we'll never spend. And also let me uh, start this after you all are talking about defunding the police and are talking about police violence. Let me announce a loan program for black small businesses. It's like not hard to see how all of those mm-hmm. things contain a logic straight from um, doing the blackface to mistreating uh, this MP or, or treating her in such a tokenized way um, uh, to, as to completely uh, erase her value. And then, and then, you know, to, to complete an action on anything that the black community is is demanding. Mm-hmm. So she's on the national. She's doing an interview, and I don't know if it's live or if they just didn't bleep it out. But she said "motherfucker," and you had said earlier what exactly in the context of talking to to Trudeau. And the interviewer asks, uh, "Wow, that's um, very strong." And he seems like. You can, like, I don't know what's going on in his mind. Like, wow, <laughs> no one's ever said this to me before in an interview or, wow. But it's it's really quite the clip to watch. Um, and I suspect that the swearing will be the reason that um, other media pay attention because that's, like, shocking and the way that, like, that's the hook for, for other media to turn this into a story. It's not at all surprising that the liberals act did act, continue to act, will continue to act like this because they're just such they're just so shitty and politics in this country are so shitty. But I think that to to talk about Trudeau in particular and his the way that he treated Cesar Chavan and that connection between his approach to black people, uh, voters or, or communities is really, really important because it's absolutely at the core of how liberals in this country at all levels interact with with non-white voters and especially with black voters and like to say nothing about how they interact with indigenous people who vote or indigenous communities um and you know and this is this is like something that i think a lot of people have a hard time really believing um certainly people who are white but probably like other people as well that the liberals can be so racist like at their core Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. but they they come by it really honestly, right? Like they are one of two natural governing parties in this country that has managed a colonial state since the state was created. So it's not very surprising that the one of the parties, one of the two parties, both parties, uh, have this has this baked into its core. What will be interesting will be to see if the liberals respond to her because I haven't seen I know that like her book has come out a little bit ago like a couple of weeks now and I haven't seen any comment from Trudeau or from the PMO or from the party and I really hope that liberal activists who care about these issues will like press their party to actually comment on them and to respond and to see if there's any political policy way to, to, I don't know, I I was going to say to make amends, but I just, I'm saying this, I'm like, no, it's a fucking liberal party. They literally cannot do that. Yeah. And beyond just the liberal party response, I want to see journalists talking to Justin Trudeau about it. I mean, could you imagine like, imagine if this was, I don't know, fuck, give me a white politician. Uh, who matters? That's the problem. They're also weird right now. I mean, like, Aaron O'Toole. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> imagine if this was, <laughs> imagine, uh, I mean. This doesn't even work with I him. I was hoping for someone, I was hoping for some, that you would name someone in the caucus. Like, oh, <laughs> in, Christian Freeland. In the liberal caucus. Christian Freeland. Okay, yeah. Imagine Christian Freeland uh, says something about uh, Justin Trudeau treating her with such tokenization and with such, you know, uh, devaluing of, of her, of her worth. Um, I would imagine immediately media would be clamoring to ask Justin Trudeau, what is your response mm-hmm. to this? And I haven't seen anyone ask Justin Trudeau, what is his response to what she said? Um, because the context of that particular comment is on the day that she calls him to say, I am resigning my post as uh, in in the liberal uh, caucus and I will sit as an independent. And his response to her is not, hey, can we talk about this or like, what's going on with you? Like, can we can we is there a way that we can fix this? I'd like to apologize, whatever. His response is, I can't have you do that right now. Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott have these other strong women have already announced that they're going to do that. And it's just going to look make me look really, really bad. <laughs> so if you could kindly wait, that would be great. It's, just, it's unbelievable. Like, that is that is so fucked up. You know, this is a guy who really relied on her, Mm -hmm. who relied on what she brought to the caucus. You know, they were very proud to talk about um, all of, you know, to to promote the stuff that, um, you know, did what they wanted her to do. You know, the discussion about her hair in parliament and so on. It's just really disgusting that that is the way that he responded to her. Why, you know, are people trying to ask him questions? I haven't seen that at mm. all. Like, is are, is the media just ignoring it? Is it just not worth finding out about it? Like this, there is a trend here of him engaging in anti-black activity. That, <laughs> that deserves some interrogation, <laughs> I, would, I would think. Mm, yeah, but Sandy... There's a butter there's a oh butter crisis God. happening in Canada right now. <laughs> oh. It's funny that, you know, imagining Christian Freeland ever like being in a position where she felt so disrespected that she would say something like that. It's it's also like worth mentioning that that's just impossible yeah. because the Liberal caucus yeah. is built around like people who absolutely would never 
question, like, even if he was ever disrespectful to Freeland, like, who fucking knows? She would she would probably, like, just be like, like, my job is to eat as much shit as I have to to protect Canada, you know? And it's just like, fuck you. Um, that was a that that was a that was a good voice thank you that was that was my freeland impression (laughs) this is very good thank you yeah i I was impressed (laughs) and so you know like of course of course someone like selena would not fit in to the liberal fucking bunch of shit i mean i'm just so cynical and i know you are as well like having seen from a very large like long distance like i've never been inside the liberal party but i've seen their conventions i've seen their hospitality suites i've seen how their fucking highest profile people act when they're around people like in a hero worship situation and it's all just like obvious and that's how it is like they are shitty people and it takes absolutely the shittiest people possible to rise to the ranks of that fucking garbage garbage heap so, I don't know. I mean, it's not super, it's pretty depressing stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's all shit, as you described. Shitty, shitty, shit, shit. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, at least, you know, what's not shit is the amazing anti-black um, initiatives that are being taken by Ontario universities. Wait, the way I oh said that was by <laughs> accident. <laughs> Nora. Nora Loretto, can you please explain something to me as someone who is currently studying at UCLA Law, where we have a professor, Professor Volokh, who very famously, um, he's a First Amendment, uh, he's a First Amendment scholar, and Hmm. he is very famous for insisting that he must use the N-word in class or no one will understand what he's talking about. It's like, we must be accurate. (laughs) We must be accurate in our teaching. Um, Can you just explain to me what it is about white people that they so badly, so badly, especially in an academic context, want to say the N-word? Like, what is going on Mm. with y'all? You know, I could I have a joke response to that, but I'm actually going to, for the first time in my life, not reach for the joke response and say, wow, I know (laughs) it's pretty surprising. I think that the university system is especially interesting for this question because there is um, a very weird power dynamic within uh, universities across Canada where um, it's not like not weird because it's white supremacy and exists everywhere, but you get these like tiny fiefdoms where um, people crawling on top of each other to get more recognition or a higher position or to get tenure or to get more resources or offices or students or whatever. And so it creates like these really intense pressure cookers of uh, of power. And so when someone gets to a specific moment in that quest for power and for different people, it's going to be different positions uh, and they're white. It actually, it makes total sense that they feel that they're in this like position where they can like literally express white supremacy and do so under the guise of what they would say is their protected space from, you know, from criticism from this, like thanks to academic freedom, which is of course not what academic freedom is. And you know, you multiply like 
all of these little kind of fiefdoms across a university, like across a department, across a faculty, across um, the whole university. And then you got a couple of universities in a city. And then you have a whole bunch of universities in a province or a whole bunch of universities in Canada. And the same issues pop up here and here and here because the the personalities are so similar. the, The structures are identical. And the pressures to maintain people's positions of power uh, look very similar because that's just like that's what the universities look like right now. So I don't know. Maybe I should have gone with the joke. What would the joke have been? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best thing about my my jokes is they're on the fly or they don't happen. <laughs> they're on the fly. <laughs> well, look, um, you know, one of the reasons we're bringing this up is because uh, the CBC's Fifth Estate did a very short, um, not at all long enough investigation on into being black on campus and the anti-blackness that students are faced with. And I just wish, you know, it was done by Asha Tomlinson, who also produces CBC's Being Black in Canada. And, you know, I almost want to contact her and say, I hope you follow it up with more because they focus on three institutions. They focus on the University of Windsor. They focus on uh, York University and they focus on Ryerson University and oh my god that's not enough you know just uh, <laughs> from you know what we know uh, Nora and myself just having worked uh, in advocacy for post-secondary institutions what we know of stories coming out over the years you can do you can do a documentary series cross-country uh, um, episodic on this issue. It's, it's, it's a major, it's major that the way that uh, black people are affected on campus. And one of the stories uh, that uh, is focused on in this case is just so, so heartbreaking. Um, This uh, black chair of a department at Glendon College, which is uh, the Francophone College at York University, and he's the first black chair of the department. And he was so popular. And, you know, he is part of a hiring committee that includes a whole bunch of other people that advances the academic career of another black person on that campus. And that is the a catalyst to all hell breaking loose because there's, you know, the these folks who are frustrated that they weren't considered for the advancement of their careers uh, take a look at this this black woman who's been who's been hired and say I'm better than her and then look at this black man in this power this position of power um, and say it must be because of him you know uh, being biased against us and choosing this other black person um, even though he doesn't have the power to do that and so that leads to uh, a ballooning of issues uh, that. Um, you know, of of people accusing him of things that he does ha- hasn't done, accusing him of just being um, aggressive, arrogant, loud, <laughs> like the the very things that you uh, see when you're when when we're talking about anti blackness, like overt anti black racism against black people, um, and it goes on for years and years and years. And the university, rather than engaging with what's actually happening engaging with the fact that there's anti-blackness 
embedded in the institution and they really need to address it it, um, as it comes up. And he's telling them like, this is what's happening. Folks are being racist. Um, You know, they, they try to get rid of him again and again and again. It is like there's a strong suggestion that they uh, encourage uh, a bunch of students to make complaints about a particular class of his, a class that he didn't teach in that year because he was on sabbatical. It's just unreal. And, you know, there's a point in this in this show where he, you know, he raises his wrist to show um, journalist Astra Tomlinson um, his scars, um, uh, just a content warning um, that he you know, he really did. He tried to, to end his life because it had such an impact on him. And, you know, I worked at York University for some time and this stuff had started before I started working there and it continued until long after I left and I was there for three years. So just imagine, um, that kind of assault on your, on your, um, job security every single day. Um, it's just so awful, such an awful story. Yeah, but it's also very common, right? Like uh, the time that we spent in the student movement, we know that these stories are widespread across institutions. And the real problem is that the people that do advance to the upper echelons of these institutions tend to be really scummy (laughs) and like kind of the worst of the worst uh, within the university system. And then they bounce from school to school in these positions, getting increasingly higher jobs and increasingly larger salaries. And then they're the ones that have to de facto be the ones that change the culture of the school, which is just an Mm -hmm. impossibility. It's like, it's, it's actually quite interesting that, that the CBC would be looking at, you know, let's say York university and trying to identify what life is like at York University for black professors and black students when the CBC itself is plagued by the exact same problems. And yeah. the, like, the, the exact same kind of people filter up to management, the exact same kind of uh, scarce resources, uh, scarce positions, backbiting, uh, power hoarding, uh, favoritism, gatekeeping, all this stuff. And like the university system, I I guess, you know, you think, well, maybe it should be better because like the students are diverse. And so finally the students are diverse. Like what's it going to take to make the faculty more diverse? And it's like, it doesn't work like that. Like these institutions are literally white supremacist institutions. And so, you know, like CBC is going to have an obvious limit to the depth of their own analysis because they can turn the camera around on themselves and look straight up the, the, the chain of command and see the same uh, issues in, in, a, in a news broadcast uh, context rather than an academic context. So it's it's really too bad that, um, you know, hopefully there will be more. I mean, it's the end of Black History Month and, you know, it's not probably a coincidence that they ran the segment in February, but hopefully they can run other segments in March or April or whenever and, and continue to ask these questions because we have to we like there really does need to be a um a reckoning with how do you dislodge people in power and how do you do that um when the power that they have is so great and is it possible for anything to change with the current people in power continuing to be in power and i i am not convinced that that's possible yeah i think it's significant that you know that the journalist on this case uh, asha tomlinson is herself black which is you know one of the reasons why i'm sure that you know we we get this kind of investigative report um 
uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's just and it's like, much like it is hard for for academics, as you say, you know, it's it's frustrating that you, that uh, it's black journalists who have to push through um, to make these sort of stories um, come to the forefront. But one of the things that is so unique about this particular story um, that I just referenced that's told uh, in Being Black on Campus uh, is that uh, that it gets to be told at all. Because as someone who worked at York University and worked at the University of Toronto and worked as a, uh, you know, as a rep uh, for uh, the student union, oftentimes these things are dealt with with uh, some sort of settlement that usually ends up with someone leaving and an NDA signed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the, 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 the fact that we get to hear about what this is happening, it represents so many other experiences across the country uh, because so often, and I'm telling you this from experience, people are forced to sign non-disclosure agreements and just uh, let things go uh, because of how hard it is on them. And so this particular case uh, and the fact that it's been going on so long and it's had this impact on this professor, the fact that he's still fighting it and fighting it publicly is uh, is is significant and deserves some attention. So, gosh, uh, anti-black racism, uh, you know, across the country, Justin Trudeau on campus, wherever it is, uh, you know, these things are important stories. They're endemic to the Canadian experience uh, and they they deserve to be discussed and talked about. Yeah, I want to mention two things before the end of this episode. One, um, the like so much solidarity, I have to say, sending out to Muslims and black Muslims in particular in Edmonton who have been consistently the targets of of, of violent attacks. This has just happened again recently in this past week. Um, maybe we should do a, a, a follow-up episode at some point on the NDP's response, which was to delete a tweet where they said that they were anti-fascists. Um, but I know that um, there's obviously great activism and great activists in Edmonton um, and across uh, Alberta who are trying to fight against these kinds of tendencies. But I did I did want to mention this. I didn't want to have an episode pass without us acknowledging that that's happened. And so if you haven't been paying attention, like definitely look at what is happening in Edmonton specifically and the rise of, of violence against black Muslim women in the streets. Um, and the second thing I want to mention is that we got a message from someone last week uh, who had commented on our episode and I, being a complete fucking noob, deleted the message rather than accepting it. So if you're listening, I saw it. <laughs> I can't remember what your name is. <laughs> and I need you to just message me back so that we can uh, close the close the the loop on that. And thank you so much for being in touch with us. And I'm normally better than just deleting messages. But honestly, I, I panicked and I... I hit delete. <laughs> Nora on Instagram, everybody. Nora on Instagram. <laughs> oh my god. 